You're listening to the First Baptist Rockdale Sunday Sermons Podcast. First Baptist Rockdale is a church dedicated to making disciples who make disciples. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Well, it is a good day. Um, Really, this is my favorite Sunday of the year, the Sunday after time change, uh, because uh, the sun is in a better position. Everything feels brighter and more ready to go. Uh, you're typically more alert, though near the end of the sermon, nap time begins to creep in. I know this, um, and so I'll respect that as much as I ever respect time when I'm up here and preaching. Um, but really, I'm, I'm grateful to be here with y'all today. Um, we're working through the book of Esther, uh, so if you have your Bible, you can open to Esther chapter 5. Esther uh, is in the Old Testament. If you get to the book of Psalms, which is kind of in the middle uh, of your Bible, Flip back a couple of books, uh, Job, and then you'll have Esther uh, right there before Job. By the way, when I make a good point, you just shake the tambourine, okay? We'll go Pentecostal right now, okay? Uh, anytime. <laughs> but, uh, it is, uh, Esther is, is a book, um, and one of the, the, the defining factors of Esther, right, as we've mentioned, uh, is that God is decidedly absent in name in the book of Esther. It's the only book in the entire uh, Bible uh, that has no mention explicitly of God. Uh, it's a book told uh, from the human perspective, but God is guiding it providentially the whole way through. That's the, the ultimate point of Esther, is that God is in control of all circumstances, even when you can't see Him. And if you'll let that truth sit in your heart this week, um, no matter what happens on Tuesday night or Wednesday or six months from now, whenever we actually have an election result, right? When, whenever we have certainty on whatever bothers us in this world, if the truth of Esther will penetrate our hearts, that God is providentially going to use all of these things to accomplish His big purposes, you will be better off in your faith and in your experience on this life because you know whom you have believed in. So we trust God, because the book of Esther points us to a God who's in control of even terrible situations, uh, and so we have that trust in God. I don't know about you, but I have a desire to be used for God's kingdom, and so it's one of the things that uh, drew me into service of God um, as a believer and continued to draw me into vocational ministry, this idea um, that God is doing this big thing. Right, this big grand narrative of redemption is still being worked out. Right on the cross of Jesus Christ, redemption was uh, was purchased. Right, we were allowed um, to be bought back from the wages of sin that we had earned, and we were able to be given eternal life through Jesus Christ. And in that moment, redemption was made possible. But God is still working redemption for people. This is one of the amazing things: is that He uses regular people, normal people, not just Bible characters of old that have these super spiritual powers that we don't seem to possess in our lives. And he uses regular people like Matt Higginbotham to do his work. In fact, that's his preferred mode of work, right? God today prefers to use the hands and feet of his people to do his work to own the grand scheme of redemption. He's still using us to bring truth to those who are lost. He's still using us um, to minister to the needs of those who are around us. He's using us to be salt and light in this world, and we get to play a part in that. That excites me, that God is doing a big thing, and He wants me to be a part of that 
big thing. You know, a few years ago, uh, Rockdale had a pretty good football season, right? It will be four years ago now. Um, we're really holding on for, for dear life, right? Um, four years ago, we, we had a football team. We had all the players, all the athletes, made it all the way state, won the state championship, right? For the town, an amazing thing. Second state championship, first one was in the 70s or something like that, 76 maybe? Um, I don't want to, 70. Six? I got it right. Look at that. Uh, bicentennial for Rockdale. But uh, so, so, so we were in 76, come back in like 2017 or something like that uh, and, and win it. Um, and it was an amazing thing, right? If you went to the state final championship game, uh, you know, we were getting uh, pretty, 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 they jumped all over us. And then we came back and, and, and won. But as you sat in there, right, you're taking part of this. You're a part of this story. Every player on that team is a part of this huge story of what um, that they were able to accomplish together and whether they played uh, in the state game or not, right? Whether they were a participant in that final uh, little section of games or not, they, they played a part in what was going on to make the team successful to do what they did. And that's a Texas high school football championship. God is doing bigger things, and you get to be a part of that. You may not be the starting quarterback in that. That's okay. You may not be the superstar uh, part of that, but God wants you to play your part to do your part in His kingdom coming. And that excites me. But how do we know that we get to be a part of that? How do we know that we're playing a part in that or that we're on the right side of that? Because everyone is playing a part in God's redemption. Some just happen to be on the other side. And the book of Esther chapter 5 deals with that issue of being on the right side of those issues. So I'm going to read a little bit and we're going to talk a little bit just to give you some, some preface. Esther has become queen through a series of divine providences in Persia. She's a Jewish woman, became queen in Persia. And through another series of circumstances, there has been an edict given by her husband um, at the urging of his closest advisor to kill all of Esther's family. Unbeknown to him that his wife was indeed included in the edict to kill all of the Jews because um, he did not know he was married to a Jewish woman. Um, he he, he uh, agreed, he assented um, to allow the Jewish people to be exterminated on a specific date in the future at the leading of his lead um, advisor, a guy named Haman, who was an enemy of the people of Israel. Esther has been called to action um, to use her position of influence and power um, to stop the massacre of the Jews. And in Esther chapter 5, she begins that process. I, I mentioned last week that at, at the end of Esther chapter 4, Esther goes from a passive participant to the main actor in the story. She takes over, she takes initiative, and she works a plan to bring about the salvation of the Jewish people. Read with me in Esther chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. I'll stop right there just to remind you of what's been going on. Esther just spent three days uh, in prayer and fasting. She was not dressed appropriately to go see the king. And so after the time of prayer and fasting that was being um, duplicated across Persia by all the Jewish believers, it was her time to go to see the king unrequested, unsought for to walk in to see the king of Persia, her husband. This was a potentially fatal decision. 
you went to see the king unrequested, uh, there was but one law, and that law was to kill you. And so Esther goes to see the king at the risk of her, of, of her life. And when the king saw, verse 2, uh, the queen, Esther, standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out the, to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? And it shall be given to you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, Look, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman, the guy who ordered the king or asked the king to exterminate the Jews, to come today to a feast that I prepared for the king. And the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It will be granted to you. What is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. And Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So Esther uh, goes to see the king at the risk of her life, uh, and, and what happens in there is a moment of like divine favor on Esther. Just as the king chose Esther um, in this moment of divine favor to make her queen, she is standing in the, in the courtyard waiting to go see the king. He sees her, and then he asks her to come. He reaches out the golden scepter, and with that, it means you can enter without death coming your way. You, you had two choices, by the way, when you went to see the king of Persia. He would either extend the scepter to you, or the person behind him, there's a picture of uh, uh, this guy, Ahasuerus's dad, a guy named Darius Hysostepes, um, and Darius was the king before him. And there's a picture of Darius that we found when digging in the dirt over in that portion of the world. Um, that he is sitting on his throne. He has a golden scepter in his hand. And there's a guy behind him who has an axe. And the, and the picture is you have two choices, either the scepter or the axe. That's the only two ways that this story goes. And Esther didn't know what would happen. But the king is predisposed to her because God is working through Esther to accomplish his redemption for the Jewish people, the salvation for the Jewish people. And so the king, not knowing that God is arranging his behaviors, uh, extends grace and favor to Esther, says, I will give you whatever you want. And this may be hyperbolic. If she had requested half of the kingdom, he may have said no, right? But basically, when he says you can have anything you want of half the kingdom, he's saying, look, I am predisposed to give you what you want. What, are you, what do you want, baby? Tell me what you want. I want to give it to you, right? I, I want to give you what you want. Just tell me so I can give it to you. Right, he has the means to give her, to be generous to her. If she had come in and said, I want a pony, he would have said, you get a pony. Right, Whatever it was that she was walking in for, uh, he knew was probably important because she came after a month of not seeing him. She just showed up at the house, at the throne room to go um, see him. So it must have been important. What do you want? I want to meet, meet you where you are. Right? And the king is predisposed to her. She says, I want to have dinner with you and Haman. In fact, I've already prepared the dinner. That's faith, by the way. Right? She's going to potentially face her death. She could be executed just for showing up there. And before she leaves, she's got all of her servants, which she has a lot. She's the queen of Persia. Right? She says, hey guys, make a feast because we're going to have people come back in a little bit. That's kind of an Abraham going up the mountain moment, right? 
Abraham's going up the mountain with his son Isaac to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, the servants are like, uh, hey, uh, what are you doing? He's like, you guys stay here. The boy and I are going to go worship, and then we're going to come back to you. Right? That's a moment of faith, right? Because Abraham was fully intending to kill his son Isaac, right? To, to sacrifice his son Isaac at the word of the Lord. And he trusted either God would bring Isaac back from the dead or God would do something else. But he knew that God's purpose would be met. And that's what Esther did. She said, I know that I'm going to leave here, but I'm going to prepare some things before I go. And so she goes and she, she has the feast prepared. She goes to see the king, said, bring Haman and yourself. We're going to go have a dinner together. And so Haman, and the, it's Haman, quickly says, let's go. My wife has made dinner. Hurry home, right? And I guess that, that, that must have some good cooks or something there because they rush in there. They're eating. They're reclining. There's food all over the place. You can imagine feeding the king of Persia is not like when I get done here today, I'm going to go home to a crock pot of beef stew. That's, that's lunch for me today, right? Uh, that's, that's what we have. But my wife is looking at me like that's bad, by the way. That's what we're having for lunch. It sounds good, by the way. Right, but I don't think it's a crock pot of beef stew that Esther's got laid out for the king. It's probably a pretty extravagant uh, thing uh, of how the food is arranged and courses and courses and courses. But Haman's there, Esther's there, uh, and, and the king is there. And Esther knows Haman wants to kill her family, though he doesn't know uh, that he's including her in that. The king has no idea what's going on in this situation. He just thinks his wife has decided she wants to eat with him. And there's this, this moment where he's like, okay, we're here. We just had this wonderful meal. I know there's more. What is it that you want? She says, well, I want to do this again, basically, is what she says. Tomorrow, let's do it again. And after that, I'll tell you what it is that I want. Right? After we have a second meal, I want you and Haman to come again. And Haman is feeling pretty good about himself in this moment because the fact is nobody was allowed to eat with the king of Persia. And when I say nobody, that's not like an exaggeration. Like, he ate by himself almost all of the time, with almost no exceptions. The only person who ate with the king of Persia with any degree of regularity was his favorite wife. That's it. No servants, no second-in-commands, no kids. That doesn't sound bad. I'm not going to lie. Right? No kids. Right? His son, Artaxerxes, who's going to become be fe uh, featured in the book of Nehemiah, uh, his son, Artaxerxes, doesn't ever get to eat with his dad. That's not part of it because that son one day will probably want to kill his father to take the throne. And so there's this very firm line in the Persian king where no one gets to eat with him. And Haman gets to have a meal with, with uh, Ahasuerus, probably his only meals with Ahasuerus, definitely his last two uh, meals with Ahasuerus um, are had in this moment. It is a huge honor. Right? But what we see in there is, is, is Esther knows that, that her time of preparation has come and it's time for action. Right? And, and if we're going to be part of God's big story, if you want to be on the side of God's big story that God is working things, you have to know that there is a time of preparation. There's this time right here where we sit in rooms and we, and, we, and we learn and we study God's Word and we go to Sunday school, we go to small group, we have discussions, uh, we ponder, we pray, we have committee meetings, we work all the systems. But at the end of all of that work of preparation, there comes a time for action. right? And Esther knew that she needed to act on God's leading. Three days of preparation, and then she chose to act on God's leading. That's what you have to recognize in your life. A lot of believers think the totality of the Christian life is this. 
I will come to a room, I will sit in a room, and I will be lectured to for 20 to 40 minutes, depending on how Matt is feeling. And at the end of those 20 or 40 minutes, I will leave that room, I will go get my beef stew, and I will take my nap. And then in six days and 18 more hours, I will return to do this again. And that is the Christian life. It's lectures, committee meetings, business meetings, lectures, business meetings, committee meetings, prayer, read your Bible, prayer, read your Bible, prayer, read your Bible, prayer, read your Bible. And we believe that if we study enough and we pray enough and we go to enough church that we're doing what God has called us to do. And I'm here to tell you today, that's not what God has called you to do. It's not. If you believe the sum total of what God is asking you to do is to be a member of a church, to participate in what the church is doing as far as corporate worship in Sunday school, you are gravely mistaken. God is not asking you to be an active attender. He's not even asking you to be a participant in the ministry that the church is doing. God is asking you to act on what He has already shown you in His Word. You need to study and pray. You need to be in Sunday school. You need to be in worship because it it informs you But if it never leads to action, you're not living the life that God has called you to do. If what happens on Sunday doesn't affect you come Monday through Saturday, then it's really an exercise in wasted time. And some reason we think, if I just had a little bit more, maybe we had one more class on evangelism, then I'll go and share the gospel with my neighbor. You know, if If we had one more Financial Peace University class, then I'll start to participate in God's work financially, giving to the church or giving to missions or whatever. Like, then I'll start to do that thing. If there's just one more thing, or, you know, I really need to study this issue a little bit longer, then I'll do it. Uh, Like, there is a time for studying issues. But but I have been in many committee meetings where, where what's picked up at the beginning of the meeting is what was talked about at the previous meeting. And then they re-talk about what they had already talked about at the previous meeting. And then the meeting time is done, and nothing is decided. And then in a month or three months, we pick it up again, and we go back, and we pick up, and we talk about what we had talked about, and we talk about talking about what we had talked about, and then we don't do anything, and then we go back in another three months, and we talk about what we talked about what we talked about, and we talked about how we might talk about doing that again later. And we might form an exploratory committee to talk some more about talking about talking about doing something. That is not the Christian life. That's bureaucracy. That is not what God has called us to be, little bureaucrats pushing the can down the road, hoping someday someone will get fed up and do something. You are called to act on God's leading. Esther had spent time in prayer, preparing herself spiritually for what she had to do, and when the moment came to act, she acted. A lot of you have been in church a long time and you have never acted on what God has called you to do. It's clear, you know it, you've heard it a hundred times, you understand what it is you're supposed to be doing, and it is a unique thing for you. But you won't do it. And then you rationalize it away. Well, maybe if someone was to ask me specifically about this, maybe then I'll do it. And we push it off. God is calling you to act on His leading. Not to study more. 
I've mentioned it in here before, but I'll mention it again. Um, the Dead Sea is the saltiest body on earth. Nothing can live in that water. It is a salty mess. You can go and float in it. You can scoop the salt out of it and dry it out and have Dead Sea salt that you can use on your you know, dishes at home. Right? It's a tourist location. It's picturesque. It's nice. And the reason that the Dead Sea is a filthy mess of death and not life is one simple thing. The water that comes into the Dead Sea is good. It's the Jordan River. Jordan River, if you go up the Jordan River, just a little bit from the Dead Sea, it is the only thing giving life to that part of the world. If there's green, it's around that river. There's no life away from that river. But where the river stops at the Dead Sea, where you think all of that life-giving water would be, it's death there. And the reason is because when it flows in, the Dead Sea, the Jordan River is constantly picking up sediment and salt and other things through the sand. And when it pulls at the end, the water evaporates. This is distilling, by the way. Not, not like you West Virginia people, but like Texas. right? The water evaporates, and then the salt remains, and then more water comes in, and it evaporates, and then the salt remains. And over the course of centuries... What used to be a space of life became death because water came in, evaporated to nothing, and all that's left was salt. And the Jordan fills it with good water, but the good water dries up, salt water is left. And in the church, we've been doing that. Some of you have been in church for 70 years, and good water has come in every single Sunday. I mean, you might have had some heresy in there too. I don't want to give every Sunday. I'll say, if you've been here as long as I've been here, you've had at least five years of good sermons. I've been here almost six years. So you've had at least five years of good sermons, okay? Bible, gospel-centered sermons, right? But if there's nothing going out of you, it pulls up inside of you. If there's no service coming out of you, all that teaching, that truth comes in you, and, it, and instead of bringing life, it brings death. The Christian life is not a life to pull. It's a life to provide an outlet. If we, were to, if we were to dig a trench from the south side of the Dead Sea um, to another body of water, immediately the Dead Sea would be a place of life. Like, in a matter of months, fish would live in the Dead Sea. There would be life again, because it doesn't get stuck there. And for some of you, you believe church is the terminal spot for your faith. You come here, and I pour into you. Your Sunday school teacher pours into you. Your parents poured into you spiritual truth. And it pulled in your heart. And because you never went and acted on what God was leading you to do, it just kept pouring in. And instead of overflowing, which is the picture we get in Scripture of positivity, it just pulled up in you. And the good stuff evaporated away. And the salt is all that remains. And the church dies. Your spiritual vitality dies if you don't act on God's leading. We continue on. Haman leaves that spot high as a kite, best day of his life. He leaves that spot and he goes joyfully, glad of heart. And Haman saw Mordecai, the guy he hates. And that Mordecai didn't rise or tremble before him, showed him no respect. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, verse 10 says, Haman restrained himself, went home, sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh 
And Haman recounted to them all the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above all the other officials and servants of the king. And then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to a feast. She prepared, and tomorrow I'm invited by her to do it again. Verse 13, Yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate, then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high, that's seventy-five feet high, be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows met. So, made. So, so, so Haman has just had the best day of his life. He's leaving there, and then he sees his old arch rival, Mordecai. And Mordecai's sitting over there, and everyone's supposed to bow down to Haman because he's this elevated position in the Persian uh, 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 system there. And he walks by, and Mordecai just looks at him like, sup? What? And all of a sudden, Haman, instead of being happy that he just had this major thing, is just bitter and raging. So he goes home, he calls his friends, has his own little secondary feast. Brings everyone over. He's like, look at how much money I have. Look at how many kids I have. Look at how great my life is. I've been promoted. I had dinner with the king and the queen. Anyone else have dinner with the king and the queen today? No, that was just me. That's right. It was me. I am amazing. I'm awesome. I'm wonderful. And then the truth comes out underneath him. He's like, but I am miserable. Because there is this dude, and no matter what I do, he just irks me. And his wife says, kill him. That's a very Jezebel moment, by the way, right? Uh, Naboth has a vineyard. Ahab wants the vineyard. Hey, I really want that vineyard. Naboth's like, no, nah, I'm not selling it. It's my family's vineyard. You, you can't have it. And Ahab's like, oh, that stinks. Then he goes into depression. He starts whining and pouting. And then Jezebel's like, why are you pouting? You're the king of Israel. And he's like, well, I can't have this vineyard. And she's like, I'll take care of it. So what does she do? Kills him. Right? It's the same. Jezebel, Zeresh is the same person. Right? So Zeresh is like, just kill him. Build a giant gallows, have a good old time. 75 feet gallows seems a little bit overkill, by the way. Right? Right? Like, the trees have done the job for a long time. Right? Like, but, but we make a full spectacle of this thing. 75 feet, everyone gets to see the dead body. Right? And we're going to hang him up there, and it's just going to be great. And, 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 and Haman's like, and then after you kill this guy, this is the fun part, after you kill this guy, then go have dinner. You'll have a great day. After I murdered someone, I would not have a great day. That'd be a day of, like, I would have all sorts of angst and awkwardness and whatever. But to him, he's like, that sounds like a great idea. That's what I'm going to do. So he tells his friends, hey, go make the gallows. So they're out there building gallows overnight. We have two plans going on here. Esther has a plan that God informed, right? She went to God in prayer, spent three days in prayer. Then she goes and she acts on God's plan. And because of that, she is working in the direction that God is drawing human history. She's a part of God's plan. She's taking part in what God has done. Haman is the exact opposite. He has no counsel with the Lord. He has no opportunity to go to God. In fact, he's an enemy of God and his people. right? And so then he calls his friends together and his wife, and he gets the worst counsel possible, and he responds uh, arrogantly, and he responds impulsively, and he does all of this at one moment. Because he's angry and he's bitter. And because he's angry and he's bitter, then he acts out of pride. And his prideful action works against what God is doing. Right? And this is the case. Right? God is drawing human history this way. And we can join God in this arc of human history of redemption. Or we can work against that arc. 
And Haman could have joined in the arc of human, human history in the plan of redemption, uh, protection of the Jewish people in this case would be, be that part. And he could join in what God is doing, but he sets himself as the opposition to what God is wanting. And sometimes that is us. Not, we're not Esther in the story, we're Haman in the story. Instead of joining God and acting on God's leading, like Esther does, we oppose God with prideful actions. Our prideful actions oppose the work that God is doing. So instead of humbly approaching God and doing what, what, what it is that God has asked us to do, we act out of our own self-interest. We act in our own benefit. And instead of seeking what God wants you to do, you seek what you want to accomplish in your life. And we, we devise our goals and our purposes and our plans. And then God says, that plan doesn't fit what I really need you to be doing. And then we say, God, I don't need to hear you right now. I got a plan. And we work our plan forward. And we think that sometimes we baptize our plan like, well, it's a good thing. There's a lot of good things in this world that you can be doing. Tons of good things you can be doing. Every person in this room could volunteer to work in our nursery uh, to help watch Beckett and Ezekiel and Collins and all the little ones that are running around there. We got new babies coming around. The Grays just had a baby, right? Little bitty Dor Dorian Gray, by the way. That's a literary reference for those of you. But, um, <laughs> right, they, have, uh, they, they just had a baby. We're going to have all these babies. Now. Every single one of you could go work in the nursery, right? We could have a rotation. There's, I don't know, 50 of y'all here today, maybe. You on the internet. After COVID, we'll use you, right? But we got the whole deal. You could all take a turn in there. But the truth is, the vast majority of you should not be doing that. Shouldn't be. The vast majority, and I'm, I'm speaking out of turn. I don't know. Maybe God's called all of you to do it. But my guess is that in God's grand plan of redemption, where that is a, a purposeful part of what needs to happen, by the way, that those kids need to be loved and, and, and shown Christian love and care from a community of faith. They need it. Some of you need to volunteer in the nursery, by the way. I'm not giving you all an out on this. Right? But, but, but we have this, this grand thing. But some of you don't need to do that. Some of you have no call to do that. God has actually called you specifically against, you know what I'm not supposed to do? Children's ministry. I, I have a few kids. I have a little bit more than a handful of kids. Six is the number. Six kids. I have six kids. And I love my children but I do not need to be watching other people's kids. I have no patience for them at all. At this church, this probably won't get me fired. Probably won't get me fired. My wife is shaking her head. Don't do it. At this church, we were doing some kids event. I don't know. My wife is the kids person. She's got it in her head. She loves kids. And I had to be there because we needed another adult. And so I was the person who was there as another adult. And I had this little kid. And I, don't, I don't even know who it is. He's a, he's a random kid. Not directly associated with our church anyway. I don't even know what the event was. But he comes up to me, and he's just like, he's all wrong. Whatever he's doing, he's probably eight. Eight-year-olds are generally kind of turdish anyways, right? And so he's just being a typical eight-year-old kid. I was like, kid, I was like, you need to stop. And he's like, yeah, 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 whatever he's doing. I don't remember. And I was like, I'm going to wear you out. Fun fact, you can't wear out other people's kids. It's not allowed. And he looked at me. And this is your pastor, by the way, telling some kid I'm going to wear him out. He looked at me and he said, what's that mean? And I said, there's the problem right there. You don't know what it means. Don't worry out. Right? <laughs> right? 
Like, I don't have the patience. There's nothing wrong with that kid. Like, he's a, he's a child of God, made in the image of God. But when I look at him, like, this is what I want to do. I don't have it. God hasn't called me to do that. You put me in that position, I'm, I'm, I'm out of my depth. I don't need to be there. And so when I do those things, I think, well, I can handle it because, like, I'm a seminary-trained professional, and I have a degree, and so I can handle working with children. And in my pride, I think that I can handle it. If God hasn't called me to do it, I work in opposition to that. You know what happens? I get beat over the head. So, so guys, sometimes we, we think we're doing the good thing. We think we're filling the role that God's called us to be. But the truth is, you're working in your own pride because you want it to be the tra- case for you. You baptize your plans. You baptize your ideas. You say, well, this is what I want, and I can kind of fit God into what I want. Therefore, it's okay. Like, I want to have uh, this car, this house, this land, this boat, this vacation, this family. I want to have these things. I'm going to baptize that because any of those things can be good or used for God's kingdom. And so I'm going to baptize that. And God, I'm going to use it for ministry. Hocus pocus, now it's your plan, right, God? Because I said I want to use it for your ministry. I want to use my, my business for your ministry. I want to use my, um, you know, my, my home for your ministry. It's, it's now yours, God, so, so it's good, right? And the truth is, just because you baptize a plan that God never gave you to go for does not make it God's plan. And in fact, a lot of times we work in opposition to what God is doing because we're working in our pride. Haman was a prideful person. He was arrogant, he had pride, and he, was, he had the worst set of counselors you could ever have. Because of that, he worked in opposition to God's story, and that is going to lead to destruction. Not this Sunday, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after. Haman's going to experience total, complete annihilation because he worked as an enemy of God. I don't know about you, but I want to be on God's side. I see what God is doing. I want to join God where he's at. And so what does that mean we do? We pray, we prepare, and we act in according to what God has led us to do. We lay our pride down, we pick up our cross, and we follow after where Jesus Christ has told us to go. God's purposes, church family, God's purposes are fulfilled through our humble obedience. Not through our prideful skill, not through our knowledge and base. God's purposes are fulfilled through our humble obedience. When we humbly obey what God has told us to do, God's purposes are going to be accomplished. I believe God has great purposes for First Baptist Church Rockdale. I believe God has great purposes for you personally. I think God is wanting to draw you into what he is doing. The big successes of God's story, he wants you to join in on where he's at and where he's going. He wants this church to join in the trajectory of life-giving to this community. But that's only going to happen. Those purposes are only going to be met through humble obedience of the church. Find where God is at work. Join him there. That's experiencing God 101, by the way. Find where God is working. Join him along the way. Be humble as you work. God has a plan and a purpose for you. It's time to act on what God has shown you. It's time to act on what God alone has shown you. There's a purpose out there for you.